This is the No Switch Fitness Podcast. We want to help guide your journey into developing your best physique. With your host, Luke Miller. All right, guys, welcome back to the No Switch Fitness Podcast. Today, we've got another edition of the Applied Resistance with Olivia Gravengard. Uh, Olivia is one of our coaches on staff. Um, she's really kind of specializing in a lot of the psychology and habit formation around uh, getting that implemented with clientele. Um, and with that, she's like kind of starting to take on the majority of the general population lifestyle, people who kind of want to live like bodybuilders, but don't really want to compete. Um, and she's doing a, a killer job. So today we're going to be doing an episode that's similar to a Q&A, um, kind of around common client questions that she's getting. Um, mostly kind of within that population, but we'll kind of also have some side commentary for competitors as well. Um, but being Olivia's show, we want to make sure that we're able to allow her to speak to the clientele population that she is getting a lot of success with. So Olivia, if you want to kick it off for us, super excited for today's show. Awesome. Me too. And really, I feel like the purpose of this is just to give one place for people to go with a lot of questions they might have, whether they're working with us as coaches or working with someone else, or even just building their own plan. Um, these are a lot of questions that I get from clients, from people I meet, um, and just one place to go to kind of answer those general common questions. Yep. Um, so i have kind of broke this up into categories, different categories in which I get questions. So I thought we could just start with common diet questions. Yeah, great place to start. Great place to start. So the first question I often get is meal plan versus macros. Um, now, I've done both and with different coaches in my time. And personally, I prefer meal plan. Um, I think that it provides a lot more structure and with macros, I feel like there's a lot more room for like wiggle room where you can kind of uh, disregard the quality of foods and it makes it very difficult, especially to pinpoint any digestive issues. Yes. Um, so I think that usually that's the best place to start for people. And then potentially if people are able to progress over time, um, learn the food choices that work well for them in the context of a more strict meal plan, then giving more freedom with macros or freedom with macros in the context of traveling or vacation or just diet breaks, things like that. Yeah. And being able to replace foods within that too is kind of where that starts, right? Like giving that challenge of like, hey, let's try substituting the rice and meal two and meal three with a different carb source this week and let's see how you do. Use your MyFitnessPal. Let's go from there. And they'll kind of learn how to use these tools to start to match foods versus different sources. Um, and then we can kind of already take the discipline that's been built within the meal plan structure and transfer it into this macro-based approach where they have this general outline for the day, but they can kind of move into that. And for all season, for a lot of competitors too, that's kind of where they need to be as well. Um, that's And that's where we should be aiming to kind of foster people with a relationship with food as well. Um, so that they have that better understanding that better relationship and hopefully mitigate, you know, possible eating disorder habits. Um, but very contextually based upon the clientele. Um, I think it's going to be kind of that decision and correct me if I'm wrong or you think differently, but 
upon intake, knowing where their history's at, where you kind of start them. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, for lifestyle clients, um, my goal is to make them more independent over time. So ideally progressing to that, to more of macros and, and being able to make their own decisions around food. Whereas with competitors, I think a lot of times like consistency is king. So staying on a meal plan, unless it's in the context of an off season, like you said, um, and someone is able to make decisions, not emotionally. I think that those are the contexts in which it's okay to progress to macros. Yep. 100%. Um, okay. So that's perfect. So the next question is an interesting one is probably when you get a lot more than me, um, is around, uh, I'm a, I'm a kind of like broad phrase. This is like diet, different dietary strategies. Right. And you can kind of dive into specifically the questions that you get around that. Yeah. So there's a lot of diet trends and there's a lot of belief systems around diets. And you see that probably more again with lifestyle, um, competitors are often like good with whatever you give me kind of thing. But, um, I get a lot of people come to me about being vegan or vegetarian or being keto and wanting to progress in those diets. And I, I think that you can make progress on different diets. Um, I think that mindset has plays a huge role in it. If you think that you can progress and someone like thinks that they can progress being on a keto diet and then they go in the gym with that belief and are able to train hard with it, like they can make progress. So I think the mental aspect plays a huge part in that. But what I see a lot with like vegan vegetarian diets is, um, food quality and needing to be really intentional around food choices. There's a lot of products out there now and like meat replacements and they have like a crap ton of ingredients and they can be really, really hard to digest. And I find that when people are like, oh, I can get my protein because I'll just eat this like rubber chicken all day long. You know, it can be really hard to keep digestion in a good spot if you're also like very veggie heavy and you have like high fiber diet. Um, it can, it can be really difficult. So I think that it's just really important that if you're going to maintain like a vegan or vegetarian diet, that you choose food sources where you're able to get complete proteins. So combining foods appropriately, but also really attending to digestion and paying attention to the quality of the food, um, so that you can support your performance in the long run. Yeah. And then also the consideration for nutrient deficiencies too, because that population is going to be rather consistently nutrient deficient in a couple of different areas and making sure supplementally we're taking care of that and moving that in the right direction as well. Um, and, and just checking for it. Right. So like when we get panels, we can look into that. Um, and that's kind of like where a lot of that goes as far as like making good food choices around some of these different dietary strategies. Right. It's like in general, like psychologically having the belief, maybe fill the holes of whatever that dietary strategy may be um, with supplementation and then be able to move forward from there. I've seen a lot of success with people who uh, kind of like did the veg vegan vegetarian thing, but then switched over to being more pescatarian allows for a little bit more flexibility within the protein sources and the capacity to be able to manage all of these variables becomes a little bit easier. So it's, it's definitely food for thought for those that are kind of in that realm. Um, oh, this is a good one. And this is probably something that we can address 
across the board, whether it be competitor or non-competitor, is this grass-fed, free-range meat being better than conventional meat and like the nutritional value of that um, and, your, and your thoughts on that in general. Yeah. So in my opinion, like if you're going to be spending money on this sport or your health, like go all in, you know, I feel like people are often more likely to want to spend money on the drugs or, you know, the competition side of things. But then when it comes to like food quality, it's like, oh, well, I can't, you know, I can't invest in that. And it's like, I think you really have to prioritize here and think about like the quality of the things that you're putting in your system. Um, I stick with grass fed free range and, you know, personally, I feel like I need to do that because of my cholesterol panel, just keeping everything in check. But I also think like in the big picture, if I'm going to invest in myself, like I need to start with the building blocks, which is the quality of the food. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's a gradual thing too, right? Like for some people being a financial consideration, uh, I would rather see adherence and ability to do that without stress, being able to get like maybe not all grass fed or, or um, free range like base foods. Um, and then like, as if their financial situation starts to improve, starting to drip feed that in, or if they're even able to find places in their um, uh, what's the budget where they can like get rid of some like, unnecessary expenditure right like for a lot of people i'm sure you see this is um not so much in the competitive world but for like your clientele is not eating out as much like they're not spending as much on eating out and so they don't realize that that money is going to be there and then they kind of see that over a couple months and then invest that into some better quality food so um it is something to consider i i do think that at the end of the day it can make a difference i don't think it's the end of the world either way um and uh, it would be kind of a case dependent thing on whether you take the time to do that. Cause I'll be real. Like I don't invest in all of that 100% and like in everything across the board. Um, but there's a couple of things like we buy like a little bit more free range eggs and a couple of things along those lines. So um, can be context dependent. I think where a lot of that you'll see is within the fish Um spending the money within like fish-based protein sources is probably really valuable. But um, the next question is another one that is across the board about, can we be training fasted? Um, This is, this is something that I find from managing a schedule standpoint for people is going to be contextually independent to the individual. I do think if you're a competitor that at least getting some sort of liquid nutrition in before we go into train is going to be important. Um, making sure that we at least get some sort of protein source in and get amino acids in the system. Um, and then a little bit of carbohydrates. Oftentimes what I'll do is for people who are waking up first thing in the morning, I'll have that last and they'll be a little bit more carbohydrate heavy before they go to bed um, so that we're having a little bit more carbohydrate influx, a little bit closer to training, um, knowing those last few meals going into bed have a larger carbohydrate amount. Um, And so this way we're kind of mitigating the need to eat a lot before we train, but can have just a little bit before um, 
But I think there's a fair argument within like gym pop pop situations to letting them train fasted from a schedule management standpoint. Um, so how do you approach that when, when people come to you? Yeah. I mean, what I hear often is just feeling uncomfortable training full. And a lot of people aren't getting up, you know, two hours before they go train to eat and then sit there and digest in order to go then lift. Like they are barely trying to find the time to even get to go lift them in the day. So, you know, asking to do that is just not reasonable. Um, so the first thing I try to do is switch it to something liquid. So having them, if they have like an intra workout drink, like maybe starting that on their way to the gym or starting that when they wake up and then they have a little bit more of that in their system before they're going into their training or even like blending up their pre-workout meal. So if something liquid sits a little bit better, digests a little bit faster, seeing how that goes. And otherwise, you know, it's not the end of the world to train fasted. I just really focus on then that post-workout nutrition And I think a lot of time there's some trial and error with that. So let's start with something liquid, see how you feel on that. If that's still just not, um, not working, we can try the post-workout nutrition and then just kind of see how, how are you progressing? Are you feeling strong in the gym? Are you kind of burning out halfway through your workout? And I think that's going to be the biggest indicator as to whether or not we need to change things. Um, when I was in prep and I was on night shift, I would, go to the gym, um, do my fasted cardio and then go to the locker room and like eat my pre-workout, like maybe, maybe 30 minutes before I lifted. So it wasn't ideal then, but it was kind of what I had to do just to have time to even eat. Um, so I think it's all about like, yes, optimal, but optimal in the context of the resources you have available, including the amount of time that you have. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really important to understand when we talk about setting a plan for someone it needs to be contextually centered around that's like i have a client who's a competitor who works um these these time periods of like week and a half to two week blocks where uh he's working in more of a physical manner than he usually is and he's working these like 14 16 hour days and it's like hey like maybe when we're in this phase we pull training back to every other day and he says it's the first time he's been able to continuously make progress with his work schedule because he knows that when he goes into these longer work phases, like uh, within that shift, he's training every other day, his recovery capacity is there and he's able to continue progressing, right? So um, a great example of that. I, and one more to add on the fasted is like, you could also, because I know there's some people who won't do well with large weigh doses first thing in the morning from a, like a stomach perspective, we can kind of switch that into free form amino acids take like a little bit more of a bolus dose with some carbohydrates. And like you said, just start sipping on that rather early. Um, The big thing you would want to do there is just dilute it so that it's not too much flavoring. Um, But that would kind of be the, where uh, a lot of the discussion starts to go. If the normal setup doesn't work for someone Um, is like some sort of liquid nutrition that's going to have amino acids in it a little bit of carbohydrates and going to be able to keep you running throughout a session. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of like where a lot of it goes. So I think that's everything for, for that. What, what do we have next? So common issue I find is people struggling to get their meals in. Um, Mm -hmm. 
especially if they're going from what I see really commonly with lifestyle is like people will maybe get some breakfast, something or other, not eat. (laughs) (laughs) Just broke my chair, guys. Don't worry about it. We can use the conversation though. All podcast safety regulations. Um, people will, you know, get some kind of breakfast maybe, and then maybe not even eat through their workday and go home and eat. Yeah. And it's interesting to me. Um, first off, that sounds horrible, but <laughs> secondly, like overall, it doesn't ever look like their calorie intake is super high with that. But what I find is a lot of times when I switch them to taking in more meals throughout the day, they struggle with feeling overly full. Um, but the, their weight will actually go down getting food more frequently, which is interesting. And I think may speak to the fact that people eat more than they think at that night meal when they wait all day to eat and it becomes more of like a stress response meal. Yeah. But moving to eating through the day can be really challenging for people from a hunger perspective, like lack thereof. And from a schedule perspective, if they're, you know, at work and they're not used to taking those times through the day to eat. Yeah. And I think one thing to consider, too, is like using foods that make it easier to eat at work. Maybe structuring kind of like the food selection around whatever the guy person's work schedule is. Um, I coach a couple of nurses where this is the case, like when they're on the floor, we need to make sure that we have food options that are easily accessible so that they can have something while they're kind of like in their work shift, right? Because you think about, and you know this as well as anybody, like working at 12, like it's a large chunk of your day. And like being able to fit meals in when you're working that schedule as a nurse is not easy. Um, and so like having those food options that allow for easy grab and go and make it make it pretty quick um, is important. And being able to consistently do that is more important than bringing your Tupperware and sitting down with this big old bowl of potatoes and veggies and chicken. And like, ideally we're getting those, those servings of veggies in and stuff like that, but we can kind of get those, those vegetable servings in and things like that on like the outskirts of the day where we have more time. Um, and so exactly. So right. Like thinking about portable type foods, like I would have like pocket foods, like whatever I could fit in like a baggie and I would just go to the bathroom and like eat it out of the baggie, like whatever you have to do. And hopefully that's not most people's situation. But I think that, you know, when you work a job like that, it's important that you're also prioritizing your goals and health. And you're going to also be able to do your job more effectively if you're fueling your body, which I think some people don't take into account. Like, as a nurse, I promise I was a much better nurse for being fed through the shift, both emotionally <laughs> and physically. So, um, oh, but I think it's also important, like communicating that with your coach. Like if they have you on six meals a day and you legitimately don't have time to do that, and then you find yourself cramming in three of the meals at the end of your day, like communicate that at the forefront and we can find a better schedule for you that is more reasonable, but also give yourself some time to figure out what works and what doesn't like setting schedules for meals, um, trying different food sources that are easier to get in, trying to take those breaks at different times of the day, and then just give it the time, like give yourself the time to figure out what does and doesn't work with your schedule. Yeah, 100%. And I think that that's kind of where even for like the bodybuilders competitors perspective is, 
being able to choose those food options that fit into your day the best. Like I'm, we're spoiled rotten. We sit at home and we make our meals kind of as we go. Right. I remember John was here and I had to prep some meals to go somewhere. And I was like, this is weird. Um, cause I haven't done it in so long. Right. It's cause it just stuck at home all day. Um, but I think when we see the adherence increase, we'll see the results increase, the buy-in becomes more, and then it just kind of turns into this flywheel that builds momentum. Um, so it's definitely a really good concept to get. Uh, we kind of touched on macro swapping already. I know that that's a common question. Um, I do think that an important one to kind of go over is around condiments, seasonings. Should I weigh food cooked or raw? Um, those kinds of things, because at the end of the day, it's about consistency, right? Like we should be having consistency with the, the condiments we're using and the uh, seasonings we're using and whether we're weighing it cooked or raw. Um, from an adherence standpoint, just being able to cook a lot and weigh it cooked is probably the best way to go. Um, but I, I would love to hear kind of your thoughts around how you, you're going about that with clientele. Yeah, so cooked or raw what i normally do is more it's more about consistency consistency than anything like if you're cooking potatoes the same way every time it's totally okay to to do the cooked weight that way because i think convenience is a huge factor here you can make it all in bulk and meal prep and you have it on hand and then you're consistently weighing it the same way so we can just see how your body responds to that amount of cooked potato. But if you're like baking it one time and boiling it another, like that food volume changes so much that it's not going to be consistent. So I think like it really depends on what the priority is. If the priority of the client is I need to be able to cook potatoes 10 different ways, then I'm going to have you weigh it raw because it's going to be a little bit more consistent that way. Um, but things like that you can make uh, in one setting a little bit more easily, such as like oatmeal or cream of rice, something like that, like weighing it raw is going to be more accurate than trying to like use the same amount of water and weighing it cooked. Yeah, for sure. 100%. I think that it's going to be especially depending upon the food item, right? Like protein sources is going to be a lot harder to get um, weighed consistently raw or right weighed consistently raw because you're, you're having to prep it every time you go to do it, right? Or have it. So um, I think it's actually dependent upon like the food and everything along those lines. Condiment usage, I think it's a general rule of thumb is like keep it under around two grams of sugar per serving. And there's a lot of condiments that fall under that, that rule. Um, so this would be like sugar-free ketchup, your GGs, barbecue sauce, mustards, hot sauce, et cetera. Where if you just keep that general rule of thumb, even if you're changing sauces out on a day-to-day -day basis, you're still from a calorie intake perspective, keeping it consistent. Right. Yeah. And I think like just watching overall intake of that stuff, you know, just because uh, something yeah. says zero doesn't mean you can just go to the town on it. Um, <laughs> like Walden farms will eventually wreck your digestion. So just like, even uh, if it's something that's low calorie, I think weighing it is still a good Tip, just so you can be consistent with the intake and just keep yourself accountable to how much you're using of stuff. Um, and then also it's totally different in prep. Like in prep, I think it's really important to be more consistent 
consistent with what you're using yeah, for sure. and definitely be really accurate in weighing it in the amount that you're using, if that's even allowed in the context of your plan. Yeah. And for the competitor side of things, like when you think about it, how easy is it for people to start a prep with minimal condiment usage and then hunger signaling kicks in and all this other stuff and like the condiment usage exponentially increases and you're actually like, depending on the condiments, like negating some of the calorie deficit, right? So um, I think that you'll see that a lot with like the GHUs, like someone will use the GHUs for one meal a day, kind of like during all season and then during prep, you get like six weeks out, you're starving, you're using it at every freaking meal. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't be doing that type of a thing. Um, I'm kind of a big fan. I do this myself when I prep is I kind of have the sauces in play that I'm going to use the entirety of the of the prep. Um, and what I do is just however many times a day I use those sauces at the beginning is kind of what I keep it at throughout the the rest of the prep. So like if I was using G Hughes twice a day, um, then twice a day would be what I kind of keep it at throughout the duration of prep. And for me, that's just a way to kind of keep it within the confines of not changing it. Um, and then that does carry over into like sweeteners and drink flavor things and all that kind of stuff. So just kind of be contextually aware of that. Um, that's actually one that I get is can I use flavoring in my water to help me get my water down? And absolutely, like if it doesn't cause issues for your digestive tract and overall like bloating, gas, irritability within that, um, then yeah, 100%, like getting the fluid intake in that you need, even if it's via a little bit of flavoring is fine. Um, again, it's just about the use, right? Like, yeah, maybe and if you are having digestive issues, start there, like, <laughs> start with those things you're adding in, because I feel like a lot of times people will be like, I think it's the salmon. And I'm like, have you had issues with salmon before? You know, like, oh, this is really sudden. We've been using salmon for a while. And it's like, no, I think it's this because it's this time of day. I'm like, okay, well, that's towards the end of your day. So like, what else is going on? Like, you know, is water intake in a good spot? Oh, you're flavoring your entire gallon of water with an entire bottle of Mio. <laughs> Maybe we should start with that and see before we pull out a food source that has benefits as opposed to pulling something out that's really just to, you know, enjoy your water a little bit more. So like, think about things like that because they, they can affect you and everyone's super different as to how they affect them. And sometimes it's just a cumulative issue. Like if you're using a bunch of sweetened sauces and sweetening your coffee and I mean, I've definitely, I have been guilty of this and then sweetening water. It's like, eventually you might run into issues with that. 100%. I think that kind of brings us to training. Yeah. Kind of wrap this up with a little training cardio and kind of go from there. All right. right. So a question I get really frequently is the difference between like priming and warm up sets. Um, Now I think it's pretty simple, but I think it's good enough to answer because I do get this a lot. Um, So priming exercises are exercises that you use as you go into your workout. It's the first thing you do when you get to the gym to warm up the joints and prime the movement patterns that you're going to use in that lift. So it's typically, it doesn't take terribly long depending on how much you have. Um, It's specific to that session and it's not about overloading at all. Yeah. Whereas... Oh, go, yeah, go, go ahead. 
No, keep going. Whereas warm ups, you know, then after you finish your priming, you go to your actual exercise, like the first exercise listed, and you start with warm up sets on that exercise. So that's when your training starts. Yeah. Yeah. And I think understanding the value in um, the priming movements from a injury management standpoint and being able to kind of mitigate that ability um, is important to kind of communicate so that the buy-in's there to do it. Because like, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come visit and we go to start a session and they're like asking me how to do these priming movements that have been in their plan for the last three months. And it's like, man, so you haven't like even been doing them at all. So uh, it's, it's interesting, but I think that if we can kind of communicate that and use examples to do that, it'll help with the differentiation of it um, and, and really kind of get you in a spot where you're you're getting that adherence to the differentiation between those two. Um, as you kind of transition, like explaining a warm up protocol, like as far as explaining how you warm up within those starting movements, a lot of times like a general rule of thumb, this is like very general. I try to say like start at about 50% of the expected workload you're going to use. If you're really strong, it might be a little bit less, but for most people that that typically works um, and kind of go through 50, 75, 90 and then like a D, D uh, what's the word? Uh, a lowering rep scheme across it. So like 50% maybe like six to 10 reps, kind of get a feeler for the movement pattern, kind of get your joint to move in. 75% maybe like two to four. And then that 90% is more of a potentiation of the nervous system where we're doing like one to two reps, right? And if you need more, tackle on more. Like just use more warm-ups to get prepared for the movement pattern. Like for me, squatting, it takes more than that because um, my knees are 90 years old, even though I'm 27. And just kind of like where my squat load is at, it does take more pit stops to kind of get where I'm squatting. So just contextually use that information to kind of add on um, as needed. Uh, where I do add on is on the lower end of that spectrum. So somewhere around the 40% to the 60% is kind of where I would add that extra warm up. Yeah. And I think, I think the main point is like um, just reducing the reps as you, as you work the way up because you should not be, just burning yourself out on your warm-up sets, but you do need to be able to handle those weights leading up to your working set. So I think that's that's what's important here is just it's not an exact science. Like you, there's a there's an aspect of learning your body and kind of knowing what you need. And some days you might feel like you need a little bit more going into a set, and some days you may be feeling really strong and you can just go with that 50, 75, 90, and jump right in. Um, but I think that just knowing that you need to taper down the reps as you work up to that working set is going to be um, key. Yes. And that kind of gets us to the working set and resting between sets and all of that. So I think when we talk about training within like consistency, as far as like across your work sets and across rest times, um, proximity to failure is probably the biggest discussion to talk about when we talk about a working set, where that proximity to failure is, is dependent upon that person's experience level. Most of the time you get a competitor that's kind of like in their competitive years or a couple of years into bodybuilding, 
that that proximity to failure is going to be rather close to failure. You get Bambi over here that's learning to lift, and it's like, yeah, we're more trying to technically learn how to lift than worried about bringing it to that failure point, right? So, and because the learning is so so new, your 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 technical failure points a lot further away than your actual output failure point, right? So. Um, having that understanding allows you to kind of understand what a work set is for you, um, is like earlier on in your journey, it's going to be more about where do we get technical breakdown, stopping that. That's going to be what a work set is. So technical breakdown within the confines of the rep target rep range for, as you kind of progress away from that, the better you get at this, it'll start to approach the failure point being output based. So like being able to fail without because of your output, not because of a technical failure. So everyone kind of falls along that spectrum. Um, and then kind of where you fall in that spectrum is just experience space. Yeah. And I think when it comes to figuring out your weights, which is something I run into commonly with people just getting into the gym, they're like, okay, it says my set is 10 to 12. What weight should I be using? And I'm like, I can't really tell you that, but it needs to be a weight that you hit that point before the technical breakdown or just at the technical breakdown within that rep range. So that usually takes a few weeks to figure out. And it's better to undershoot a bit as you work up to it. That's when I like to really have people send in videos, make sure form is in a good spot. And then as we check off on every exercise, like, okay, now we talk about ingraining a little bit more intensity and pushing to that, that failure point, depending on what that looks like, where they are in the um, like level of advancement. Yeah, for sure. Uh, rest periods, just keep it consistent. I think most people are going to do well with the minute and a half to two minute mark. If it's a larger movement, don't be afraid to take three to four. Just be consistent with it over time. Um, I know when my fat ass gets out of a squat pattern, and there's no way I'm getting back in it two minutes later. So um, that's kind of like where you have to understand. So I like to use a term called rest till recovered. So breath cycle is kind of lower down to normal breathing and we feel prepared for the next set. That's kind of when a lot of times I'll use that. It's a slippery slope for people who are a little bit newer because we can like rest to recover turns into looking at my phone and then looking at my phone turns into seven minutes later and or chat with the buddies. And it's good to have that like time, time stamp on it. So uh, how are you approaching that with your clientele? Yeah, that's, I usually give the minute and a half range for like just the general, especially isolation exercises. And then sometimes like three minutes or so for like a compound. Yeah. Um, but what I hear more commonly is like, okay, well, I re you know, I finished my workout in 30 minutes today. And I'm like, were you rested? Like, <laughs> but then I find like, oh, well, I cut down the rest times to burn more fat or I supersetted things to burn more fat. And I think, you know, just really maintaining what the goal is for the session, which is to overload and build muscle, even if our goal isn't to become a bodybuilder. Like that is, you know, the focus of that session is not to burn fat and impair performance by not taking the adequate time to recover. So I think starting with those general time guidelines and then, you know, ingraining what that means, like till recovered, you know what that feels like once you get to a point where, okay, you know, I can breathe again. Um, I'm not shaking anymore. I, I don't see stars anymore. Um, I'm ready to get back under the weight and mentally feeling zoned in enough to, 
to handle the next set. Yeah, and I think that when we talk about it, bringing into the competitive realm, like the end of prep, this is where it's even more important to understand that we shouldn't be doing those kinds of things of bringing in rest periods. We want to be able to maintain load. Volume should probably be at a minimum at that very end point. And then being able to keep that going throughout the prep is going to be important for tissue retention. So it's important across the board. I think what you end up finding with this podcast is that a lot of bodybuilders and gin pop people will use general tenets it's that are similar it's just experience level that differentiates how it's approached and executed and then within the gym pop side there might be a little bit more of a functional aspect involved right because we we still want to look we still want to be able to do the things that the activities that they want to do as far as like rock climbing or hiking or all that stuff and i can tell you right now as a bodybuilder that those activities are not very fun when you are walking around a 250 so that's kind of (laughs) that's kind of the stuff that honestly like a lot of times gin pop or lifestyle people are just are bodybuilders in their own right just slightly differentiated approaches right and so it's uh it's interesting because you see a lot of similarities just the stringent nature of the execution kind of starts to change and like the expectations for that clientele versus an actual competitor Mm-hmm. cardio one of the best ones i think we'll kind of wrap it up on cardio for the day yeah so you mentioned you know people wanting to rock climb or you know whatever <laughs> do any number of activities and i think i think that's a good point i feel like if you're a lifestyle client and there are other things that you want to pursue and i find that that's pretty common people are like i want to get on a diet i want to you know, have a more active lifestyle. I want to get in the gym. Uh, I also want to try um, kickboxing. And it's like, okay, then let's, let's work that in. Like, let's figure out how to make that part of your cardio assignment or, you know, manage your training around that. Like, that's probably going to reduce training. But I think like setting cardio guidelines for lifestyle clients partially depends on what other activities they're trying to manage as well. And I see a lot of you know, people like to do like their Peloton or go to classes and things like that. So sometimes that can be a good option for getting in that cardio through the week. But another thing is, which I really love that you use, and you know, you're the first coach I've been with who has used this, but a step count. I think that's so massive and can make such a huge difference, um, especially in mindset, like how people are approaching cardio and activity in their minds yeah and it's like a good way to be able to i find a lot of people use it as a like bonding time with their family and that's like a great way to do it like uh i'm sure they'll be fine with me saying this you know shana meredith uh lynch they live over in fort worth they they'll take their little son ren out for walks for their step counts right and he like absolutely loves it he's like in his little stroller and uh getting to point at things and look at things and stuff and uh they like tag me in their stories of them getting their steps and it's a great way to like be able to get out especially like both of them work from home so it's like an, a great way to get out into the sun and kind of get moving and that kind of stuff i think it's important to kind of understand um that there's there's psychological value and physical value in a lot of the things that we're doing when it comes to things like moving and step counts and stuff and uh it kind of pushes people towards what would be called like a high energy flex state so like trying to get people moving more and consuming more um for a lifestyle that's generally better from a body composition perspective Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think because you know work from home is so much more common now, I find people are getting like two or three thousand steps a day, and it's like, man, let's not immediately throw you on the stairmaster five times a week. Let's like let's go on some walks, like which can also help with your mindset. It can help with your digestion. Um, in general, like your health's going to be a little bit better if you're not spending twelve hours a day sitting. So I think there's a lot of benefits to using that, and in general, using that as a way to create a more active lifestyle, like you're saying, that high energy flux, as opposed to just adding in a cardio session to burn calories. Yeah, for sure. I think the importance of this is putting it in your schedule. Cause I know like when I get swamped, that's like one of the first things to go out of the window is like step counts or it's easy to make it one of the first things. And I end up spending the second half of my day trying to make up the steps that I didn't do throughout the day. Right. And so like having those little time blocks in your schedule where you do block it off or having those step counts is is important. Uh, how many you have throughout the day is kind of dependent upon your job, right? But um, I think another thing to think about is these people who are working highly physical active jobs, mm-hmm. that like it may be more around um, cardiovascular adaptations of just having a shorter cardio session because they're already walking 15, 17, 18K a day. And it's like they're on their feet all day right so we don't really have or to college eat. students i see that a lot where they're walking like fifteen thousand steps a day and it's like man it can be hard enough to get food in during those times so i think it's really important um whether you're managing your own plan or as a coach to take that into account because you know you can have two people in a similar uh, like age bracket, but like their activity through the day could be completely different based on like the context of their job or lifestyle. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one, another, the modality one is good too. Like what modality of cardio should I be using? Um, I always go for enjoyment first. I will say, however, from a competitor standpoint, like lowering the impact of the cardiovascular activity is huge for managing a prep. I think from a lifestyle perspective, like lowering the impact is good just so that fatigue doesn't discourage them towards their goals. Um, But like from a progress perspective, like off season prep, whatever, the modality should be one that gets your heart rate elevated, one that um, is going to be minimal impact to your training and or lifestyle. And then if needed, rotate those out so that the cardio quality is moving. So like, like, for example, with Nick across his prep, what we're doing is two days of Stairmaster, two days of bike, two days of treadmill. It's like different kinds of impact. We kind of spread that across the, the week according to when he trains legs. So the higher impact ones are a little right after leg days so that we're not impacting the performance leading the legs and the impact level kind of lowers throughout the week. So it's just dependent upon the client. And I think enjoyment factor for the lifestyle side is probably the best which is where i encourage people to go do those activities of like hiking and biking and things like that yeah and and also just thinking about um like you're saying uh impact like for leg training something like that um i also noticed some people have like some joint issues start to crop up around certain modalities. So like for myself, if I get on an elliptical, my feet are numb within like a minute. So that's just a no go for me, but it's like, that's okay. It's not a have to, but it might work for someone else. But I think you have to 
I think the enjoyment factor is huge. And because if it's not something that you can sustain, it doesn't really matter what is the best. Like the best is the whatever you can actually stick with. Yeah, for sure. 100%. And I think even looking at like scheduled maintenance, right? Like having something at your house mm-hmm. and whatever that person does have at their house, maybe like leaning on that a bit just so that we save the time and the schedule for the adherence side of things. So um, that's kind of like a big one too. But I think that kind of wraps up a lot of the common questions around cardio training and and diet. I think we're going to have to do a completely second episode on sleep and habits and talk a little bit about like the Atomic Habits book around that because I do think that that would be important to kind of create a framework around that because I think that's across everyone. I think that's kind of a podcast where like we need to have that conversation around these things because it's so important to just general success and being able to have that. So we'll, we'll make sure to do a second episode on that. Um, did you have anything else before we kind of logged off? No, I think that's about it. All right, guys. Well, to pay the bills real quick, um, we're, we've got two fantastic events coming up. So, uh, Manchester, March 20th, we're going to be joining with pro coach, which is Callum Raystrick and, and Ross Byrne, um, doing a seminar, a physique seminar, pretty specific to bodybuilding. Um, going to be pretty much covering everything you would need to know to set out your competitive year. Um, every little detail from training, nutrition, PEDs, stuff like that. Uh, and then we'll head over to Rotherham with Kuba at Ultraflex and Jordan Shallow uh, for a hypertrophy intensive going over everything, uh, execution base, injury profiles, programming, every, anything that you would need to consider along that, which is a very, very in-depth two-day seminar, the 26th and the 27th of March. So make sure you guys check that out. Um, we have links for those tickets in our bios. Um, and super excited for just those events and more events to come across the year. Um, So until next time, no off switch in the pursuit of results.